Hello, I'm Sarah Ackie-Bogan and welcome to XXAOC Conversations, a podcast series which seeks to tell the stories of female architects of colour. They seem to be very much missing from the architectural canon, from the narrative around architecture. I wanted to know why. I'm an architect, filmmaker and a woman of colour and over the past couple of years I've been making a film about female architects of colour, searching for stories, trying to uncover histories and interviewing women. I've had some great conversations along the way but I realised that I couldn't possibly include all these conversations in the film so I thought I'd start sharing them here, hence conversations. Architecture is the backdrop to all our lives. It's where we build our dreams, make our memories, have our families. It holds our histories. Architects are, in a sense, custodians of the future built environment. So it's something that is relevant to everyone. And so everyone should be part of making it, creating it creating the spaces where we live. But unfortunately, that's not always the case for all sorts of reasons which I will discover during my research. Here in the UK, women of colour are largely underrepresented in those that make our built environment. So this is a series of podcasts which seeks to give voice to their stories. It features outtakes from our filming and conversations around our research It explores what it is to be in that underrepresented group that is women of colour in architecture today and seeks to uncover the stories of those women from history we don't yet know much about. You'll hear mostly from the fantastic women I've interviewed who've so generously given their time. My first interview was with Dr Sharon Igreta Sutton. She lives in New York City and was only the 12th African-American woman to register as an architect in the United States. She's also the US's first black woman to become a full professor of architecture. So a pretty impressive woman and I was truly excited to speak to her. I came across Dr. Sutton after starting my research with a tweet. Hello, I'm starting a project to collect the stories of hashtag female architects of colour, past and present. Who should I be talking to? Who should I be talking about? Please send suggestions. Many thanks. I was inundated with replies from around the world. including many from across the pond. And Dr Sutton was one of the suggestions. So I contacted her, asking for an interview, and remarkably, she said yes. Our interview was recorded over Zoom, so every now and again you'll hear the odd background noise, and from time to time you'll hear from Dr Sutton's parakeet, Charlie Bird, who was very keen to get in on the conversation. Dr Sutton is an academic and an activist, 
and her childhood was set against the turbulence of 1960s America. The Vietnam War, the death of Martin Luther King. The civil rights struggle, which began in 1954 with the Brown versus Board of Education. Dr. Sutton is this incredibly elegant black woman with a halo of white hair. She takes our call from her very stylish 1930s apartment. She tells me about being a child at that time in the midst of all that. 1954, I would have been 13 years old. So, so I grew up surrounded by this struggle for liberation. And some of it was nonviolent and it became increasingly violent. Um, so, so it was a time of struggle for liberation in society. And then, of course, my life was very much a part of that, that I was a high school junior um, the year that the nine high school juniors in Little Rock, Arkansas, were trying to uh, integrate their high school. They were called the Little Rock Nine. And yeah, it was a very violent protest in which uh, the National Guard had to be called out to escort them into the building. And it was on TV, and you know, it was just a really horrific thing. So these, th- these struggles for integration were very much part of my growing up and uh, wanting to you know, be, be free, wanting to have my liberty. So I, I went to this wonderful high school. I, I graduated, went to New York to become a classical musician which everyone had told me my entire life that I could not do, that a colored colored girl could not be a classical musician. They gave me many reasons. I wondered, had her parents been musicians? Well, that was the first thing people would say. Well, if your parents are not musicians, how can you be a musician? Mm. And and because there's this whole myth, and it's part of... um, Part of discrimination is you have a root in, and the root in is something you inherit. It's like, you know, kings have princes, and musicians have children who are musicians, and nobody else can get in. So, um, but I I became a musician, and I went to New York, and sure enough, got a job because I didn't miss any notes, and uh, was working as a musician. So uh, Columbia was just the kind of end of my, uh, my, well, not the total end, but certainly a big step in my personal journey uh, mm. toward uh, that struggle for freedom, that struggle for liberation. But that, that's interesting because you, you, you'd already sort of overcome, uh, you know, a barrier, already sort of crossed the frontier by becoming a musician. I was undoubtedly the first black female French horn player in a union, but I don't know that for sure because I don't know the, the research. I do know that at a certain point, a black woman who's a French horn player called me up and said, I heard about you and I've been looking for you. Are you really you? <laughs> do you exist? <laughs> do you exist? So that, that's a whole nother kind of adventure that I actually don't know the story of. In a way, it was easier and harder. You know, there, I, I was able to work as a musician because I was fortunate to have 
play, to play an instrument that was rare. I played it because I couldn't afford to buy anything else, and so I had to take what was free. And it happened to be the French horn and some, some other undesirable instruments. <laughs> okay. And, and so everybody always needed a French horn player. And if you, you know, if you didn't miss notes and sort of screw up the whole thing, um, you, you could get a job. So, and then it was unionized. So the whole, my, the whole pay equity thing that's so uh, prevalent still in architecture, I didn't experience in music because it was unionized. You got a union scale. And the French one players actually got a little more than everybody else, not everybody else, but there are certain instruments that get a little bonus because they're more different. So, okay, so, so you, you'd already crossed this frontier and then you get this, this call, well, so then you start studying interior design and then you get this call to go to Columbia. And was that already um, an aspiration of yours? Was it something you thought about, this idea of going to an Ivy League school or did it literally come out of the blue? It, it came out of the blue. I, I was doing interior design as a hobby. You, you can't play the French one that long. So <laughs> day is very short. I'd always had extensive hobbies and they had to do sort of with design and it was kind of the way I got into interior design that I you know spent most of my time when I wasn't practicing the French horn designing and making clothing and so when I, I went for my interview at Parsons I had a terrible portfolio I had no idea how to try <laughs> But I was beautifully dressed and oh, obviously fantastic. dressed as, you know, un, in an unusual way. And there's a fashion school there. So they immediately recognized that I had the skill uh, because it wasn't, you know, I just, you know, if, you, if I went into an architecture school, they, would, they wouldn't even notice. Parsons being this, that its main school is a fashion school, uh, was immediately attracted that I had style. So they said, well, we can teach you to design. So, 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 then, um, so then I suppose, what did, at, at that point in time, what did architecture as a discipline mean to you? It, it sounds as though you were entering a world that was entirely new. When you well, start not, not exactly, because I'd already renovated a building. I'd already developed a building to practice my French horn. Wow, that's uh, amazing. And, and, and you know, uh, there's, a, there's a relationship between space and music. So that's I had been all over the country performing in the best music halls in the country, mm-hmm. at the Academy of Music in Philadelphia, the now-destroyed old Metropolitan Opera House uh, in Canada. There were wonderful halls in Detroit. You know, if you go into a hall that has great acoustics, you're a better performer. I was very aware of the importance of space. I had also seen my neighborhoods destroyed by urban renewal. I wasn't tuned out to the spatial world. I was very aware of the spatial world. I needed space to practice my French horn, so that's how I got involved in renovating a building. Um, and, and actually, my dad always, as a child, let me do anything I wanted to do in my room to make it be the room I wanted it to be, including 
cutting the legs off of furniture. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, it, 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 was, it, it wasn't there as a named thing, but it was there as uh, part of what I did in my, my, my homemaking. To, to facilitate your own kind of needs as a, as a professional, as a person. So, yes, right. So you had an understanding of space and the idea of transforming space and you had an understanding of, you know, c- cities and how, how the sort of shaping of cities affects people's lives from this kind of direct experience. So, so then what was it like to, to, to be a student at Columbia? Sort of how did you grow in your understanding of architecture and your aspirations yeah. as an architect as you became one? Well, what was really wonderful was that Max Bond called us all architect, and I loved <laughs> being called an architect, and I still do. I mean, I never call myself a psychologist, although that's my PhD. I like being like, you know, there was a lot of action going on. You know, there were all of these black students who brought in our fried chicken, and we were making a lot of noise. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we were kind of a big, happy community talking about architecture as the revolution. But I think what was most impressive on me was just being on that campus, that I had always been aware of space and being in these great halls. But I was backstage. I was in the pit. And now I was on the stage. You know, I mean, I was just so taken by the architecture of the campus and especially that top floor of Avery Hall, where the studios are. My particular studio is the North Studio, and I would come in. You could have as much space as you could grab, and so I would be there early, getting all sorts of materials and building my, you know, my two-room apartment uh, by the slop sink where I would would uh, set up. I, I just want to read you the little. It's a little paragraph. From my book uh, about the uh, space, because it was very important to me. Every year during the first week of classes, a flurry of activity would turn Avery's vast studios into a warren of self built cubicles. Students framed their gigantic oak drafting tables with whatever scraps of lumber, gypsum board, and other discarded materials they could scavenge to create personalized workspaces. In time, they added cardboard models, coffee cups, tools, books, and reams of tracing paper, lining the walls with photographs, maps, and drawings. Soon, the studio became a veritable shantytown within an Italian Renaissance palace. Mm. I had always practiced the French horn in my bedroom alone, and, Mm. and that was my studio, was my bedroom or my apartment bedroom, or my house bedroom. And to be in this huge space with a lot of other people is something that even today I, is a very, you know, the space has gotten smaller and smaller with more and more people in it. And now we only have computers and not those big overdrafting boards. But still the communal space in the studio is, a studio is a, is a kind of learning, but it's also a space of learning that I very much treasure. Mm. That, that, that's very interesting. I've never heard it described quite like that, but there is something about, an architecture studio and that kind of freedom to 
to just create your own world. You know, it, it, it's magic. Right. But it's also and, the social quality of it, you mm-hmm. know, that, that it is a home away from home. It's a kind of third space mm-hmm. uh, where people, but they're not just kind of hanging out drinking coffee. They're, they're doing productive, creative work together. And I will just jump in here to remind you that that very enthusiastic participation that you can hear in the background is Charlie Bird. Well, I, I do printmaking, and so... Uh, I have participated in a lot of different printmaking studios around the world, and um, you know, they have that same kind of quality, of, um, especially in printmaking, because it's a it's a subject you can't learn by reading a book. Mm-hmm. You have to get other people to d- demonstrate it to you. So, I think that's what was uh, the most different in music was the collective quality of learning. Mm-hmm. I understand. Um, so it, it sounds like it was a, a kind of um, incredibly empowering experience. And then you said this thing that I was struck by, that the black students were talking about architecture as the revolution. Yeah. Which is an I've never heard. Yes. <laughs> and I kind of understand, because that sort of encapsulates this idea of hope, you know, and the, the possibility of maybe being able to change one's own world, the worlds of, you know, one's family or community and so on. It, is that the sort of um, the, the sort of hope that people carried with them as they were at Columbia? Yeah, well, and it wasn't, uh, it wasn't only black people. But it was a whole time of thinking that you could change the world. You know, there was a counterculture in addition to the whole race revolution of people just looking for a different way of living, whether it was a communal way of living. Soleri was out in the desert trying to build this castle in the desert. You know, he's going to build a city that was all in the air. And, you know, there were people in London and, the, you know, there were the Beatles. And, the, you know, people were trying to reinvent society. And so, you know, for architects, it was through architecture. Today, you know, the first thing we talk about with students is what are your precedent? And it was the opposite then of trying to think of ideas that nobody had ever thought of before. <laughs> you know, so it was very a very liberating time to study architecture. Well, that interview was recorded in May 2019, BC, before COVID. And of course, a lot has happened since then. The world is quite a different place. For us on XXAOC, some nice things have happened. The interview was published online by Parler, an Australia-based online organisation who campaign around gender equality in architecture. Parler also invited Dr Sutton over to Melbourne to speak about her work. And here in the UK, Architecture Activists Part W nominated Dr Sutton for an RIBA gold medal. And more recently... Architect Stephanie Edwards made a passionate argument for Dr. Sutton to be included in the canon. Dr. Sutton still lives in that fabulous apartment in New York, though sadly without Charlie Bird, who has since passed away. I have continued my research, and since discovering Dr. Sutton and the rich history of her life and work, well, I've wanted to discover more about historic figures, both globally and here in the UK. And I'm still trying to find the answer to that question. Who was the first black woman to qualify as an architect here in the UK? More on that search 
future conversations, including the rest of this one with Dr. Sutton, to come on future episodes of XXAOZ Conversations. Until then, thank you for listening. The XXAOC was produced and edited by me, Sarah Akibogan. Special thanks to the Rocker Gallery London, where we did most of our filming. Special thanks to Justine Clark of Parlour for taking an interest in the work early on. And special thanks to Part W for giving us a platform in the early days. And of course, huge thanks to Dr Sutton herself for so generously giving her time for this interview. It wasn't only black people, but it was a whole time of thinking that you could change the world.